Hello and welcome to Reformed Podmatics, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. This podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Reform Podmatics. I am Pastor Mark. And I'm Pastor Zach. And uh, we thank you for joining us after a bit of a hiatus here, after the holidays have now come and gone, and you have um, celebrated Jesus' birth and the beginning of the new year, and hopefully um, with us you will be prepared to uh, launch into the new year of learning uh, God's Word, growing in Christ, growing in uh, grace. And uh, today we've got a little bit more of an intellectual or academic episode, you might say. However, um, it, it's always the intention of uh, Zach and I here on Reform Podmatics to be connecting theology and uh, you might say Christian philosophical topics to your regular life as a Christian. And even though you may look at the title of today's episode, how did we get the canon of scripture and think that this is just going to be about book stuff, um, <laughs> I I want to encourage you to stick with us through this episode because there's going to be a lot of practical um, knowledge that we try to impart through, through the episode. Um, this is one of the major matters that um, that affects Christians today when we try to defend our faith is to defend the authenticity, the reliability of the Bible. And that's a lot of what we're going to be getting at today. Um, there's There are often attacks that the Bible was fabricated by people with political goals. Um, Constantine often gets raised in that conversation that yeah. this this bunch of guys who wanted to control people using the Bible got together at the Council of Nicaea and hmm. um, yep. devised a collection of books in a certain way that was going to control. Um, certainly, that's a very exciting story, I suppose, <laughs> uh, just in the same way that conspiracy theories can be exciting today. Um, but we'll find that that is actually not the case, and um, that popular accusation of Christianity really doesn't hold any water. So, uh, so we'll get into the reality of it, the, the real story of how the books of the Bible were chosen, and um, we, we do so, again, not just for intellectual reasons, but to try to encourage your faith and your trust in the reliability of the Bible. Yeah, I think we'll start by making the point that our understanding of how the canon came to be, we should think of it primarily in theological terms. Uh, not to say that there's not history and we can actually look at the history and see how it came to be. There is that story. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to be a Christian to see uh, how the Bible came to to be in the final shape and form that it's in, we, we might say, which is known as the canon. Uh, so I'll start by reading a verse that I think really determines how we understand this whole episode. Mm. And that verse is from John chapter 10. This is uh, Jesus speaking as the, the good shepherd. This comes from the famous sermon where he preaches about how he is the good shepherd. And we Reformed people may think of this passage as the famous passage where he says that no no sheep will be snatched from my hand. So mm -hmm. we, we often refer to this passage when we're talking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints uh, and how God holds all of his own people and they cannot fall from him. 
but here also, Jesus makes an interesting statement here in verse 27, where he simply says these words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, he's obviously not referring here directly to the development of the canon, but I think that this, uh, this passage, this verse, is instructive for how we think about the development of the canon. God speaks and his people hear his voice because he is their shepherd, and they know him, he knows them, and they follow him. And so this is, I think, a good, even devotional way to start mm. out this episode uh, that the, the fact that the canon exists and has been received is only because of what God has done. He has spoken, and because he is the Lord of all, his word does not fall on deaf ears, it does not get abandoned or forgotten, and it doesn't uh, fail to exist long into the future. God upholds his word. His word continued to be passed down and received and heard uh, and uh, determined to, to be his word by his people. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. Uh, Mark mentioned that we'll be talking a little bit about sort of you, what you might call secular humanism and its way of uh, des- describing the story of the canon. And there is that. There's there's those who are like uh, uh, Bart Ehrman, for example, who would be sort of the big name in this realm, in this uh, sort of discipline. Uh, known as textual criticism, who would say that it was the church who imposed the canon on, on, uh, on all believers, and mm-hmm. it sort of decided uh, which books were in and which books were out, and it did this in order to establish and maintain its own version of orthodoxy when there were other other versions of orthodoxy. There were sort of different Christianities, and it was basically. Uh, the powerful institutional church that won the day and got mm-hmm. to tell the story the way it wanted to tell it and so on. So there is that sort of uh, approach, and that's that's sort of how most uh, atheist people will, will see things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also, on the other hand, an apologetic angle when it comes to Protestants and Roman Catholics here. Uh, in general, the Roman Catholic Church will sort of posit the idea that the church chose the canon, and because the church chose the canon, it shows that the church has some sort of authority or priority over the canon. And so the canon is the church's book, and we would agree with that part in the the sense that it is for the church to interpret. But the Roman Catholics, what they would mean by that is that the church— in its institutional authority and hierarchy, particularly with the magisterium, uh, it has sort of a priority over the canon in that it has the right, the sole right, to interpret uh, the scriptures according to its own ways. And so Protestants here have another point of contention. Uh, this, so this episode will be apologetic for that purpose. Mm-hmm. And it remind, reminds me, for example, of a story of I have, I have a friend who... Uh, grew up Roman Catholic and in his college years uh, became a Protestant and started coming to my evangelical church in my hometown. And uh, But one Sunday night, he was going up to a different church, uh, sort of a uh, well-known church in the Fresno, California area, and he was just checking it out because his friends were going there. And he stopped to get gas, and he was bringing his ESV study Bible with him that he had just purchased. And he made the mistake (laughs) of putting the Bible on top of his car while he was getting gas. And lo and behold, one of his former Catholic church friends (laughs) shows up at the same gas station 
and sees this Bible and starts accusing him and telling him that that's not a real Bible. That's a Protestant Bible. And that Protestants have taken passages and books out of the, the true Bible. Mm. And so this is, this is still to this day, that, that's just illustrative of the fact that this is still a contention between uh, Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. And so that's part of why we, we want to get into this episode. Yeah, I think there can be insecurity sometimes in those sorts of situations or conversations. Um, and that insecurity is rooted in just a lack of knowledge of how we arrived at the canon of Scripture, that we have the yeah. list of books that are included, the 66 books of the Bible. Um, and it is important. That's one of the reasons that we're also including this episode for the podcast. There are various passages of Scripture that say, do not remove or add to what God has said. Yeah. Um, John Calvin was was really serious about that. Even in his own preaching, um, he would say things like, I don't want to say any more than what God has said. I don't want to say any less than what God has said. And yeah. so he was very devoted, particularly to expository preaching, going through the Bible so that he would cover what God has said, um, nothing more and nothing less. Hmm. And you also can remember the, the blessing and the curse of the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, which I believe is not just referring to the book of Revelation, but also really of the whole scripture, um, where John records, I warn everyone, says the Lord, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Hmm. So it's serious. And, yeah, it is. And, and so... On one hand, you do have those unfortunate situations where two friends are yelling at each other about what should actually be in the Bible. Um, But I would say at least they recognize the importance of what it means to, to sort of do the Thomas Jefferson method of taking yeah. out that exacto knife and taking yeah. certain parts out that he didn't like as somebody who rejected supernatural activity in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, or you have other things like the Mormon situation of adding to the book by adding whole more other books like the yeah. Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. And so um, so we do want to take this seriously and also give listeners the tools for discerning what should be in the Bible or even how we arrived at what we have in the Bible. So what are some of those criteria, Zach? Yeah, so how we get the scriptures is a uh, sort of a long story, of course. It takes yeah. several hundred years. We, as Christians, believe in what we call progressive revelation. So uh, unlike sort of the, the Muslim faith and the Quran, uh, the scriptures didn't just appear. And they weren't just written down by one person at one time. They were written uh, over the course of human history, really. And so we can think of the canonization process uh, differently for the Old Testament mm-hmm. and the New Testament. And maybe even before I get into that story, it might be helpful to clarify terms for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what we mean when we use the word canon. You're mm-hmm. wondering about something that shoots a large ball yeah. uh, on a on a battlefield, and that's that's <laughs> not what we're talking. That's a about. canon with two ends. That's a canon yep. with two ends. This is a <laughs> canon with one end, which is sort of uh, built on the Greek word for a measuring rod or mm-hmm. a rule. Um, so today, we, you may hear uh, it's not 
super common knowledge, but you may hear in a college classroom, and if you have a literature class, your teacher may talk about the English canon. Mm -hmm. What they mean by the English canon would be books in the English language that are sort of fundamental books for how English has been shaped and how the English-speaking world has been trained to think. So Mm -hmm. uh, it may include books by Shakespeare. Uh, That would be really fundamental to the English canon. Uh, It may include uh, poems by Wordsworth uh, Mm -hmm. or others. And so there's those sorts of books, uh, sort of the books that high schoolers tend to find themselves reading (laughs) in the public school or in Christian schools these days. I remember I read Shakespeare. Uh, We read To Kill a Mockingbird. That's sort of part of the English canon, at least here in the United States. And so the canon just sort of means the the standard. Uh, you could think of it in that way. And so when we think of the Christian canon of Scripture, uh, it's the, the the books that are contained in the Scripture, and therefore the books that are also rejected would not be considered canon or a part of the canon. And so another funny word you will hear us say in this episode, I'm sure, is that of the apocrypha or apocryphal. Uh, apocrypha is a noun. It refers to the list of books that are not considered truly canonical, but are nonetheless widely recognized as having an important status under the books of the canon, uh, or sort of, uh, uh, yeah, their, their authority is subject to the canon. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't have the same kind of authority. And so apocrypha really depends on, or what is considered the apocrypha depends on who you are also. This is yeah. an important point to note. Some of the books that we Protestants consider apocrypha are considered canonical by the Roman Catholics. And even the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has books that everyone else considers apocryphal, but they consider canonical. So mm-hmm. uh, that is helpful to know. And so back to the, the story, the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament, of course, is written over the course of a long period of time. Uh, you could think of the Pentateuch written by, traditionally it's believed to be written by Moses, and that goes all the way up until the, the Minor Prophets ending with Malachi. And so, and Malachi is written in, in the 5th century BC, and so this co- covers the course of a long period mm-hmm. of time, over a thousand years of books that are being written. Uh, but these books, more or less by the Jewish, the ancient Jewish people, were known to be the, a particular canon, and this canon is actually what the Protestant church still holds to. Uh, however, over the course of time, other additional books... Uh, like the book of Sirach or Wisdom or Tobit or Judith. Uh, these books are sort of collected uh, in the, the Jewish collection of books, but they were never considered to be actually inspired books, and therefore they weren't, they weren't seen as being a part of the canon. But by the time of Hellenization, which we would have seen a couple episodes back when mm-hmm. we talked about the Maccabean Revolt, uh, Hellenization starts to happen and Jews begin to feel the need to translate their books into Greek. And so they translate their scriptures along with a a few additional books or additional passages, uh, such as additional passages in the book of Daniel, and they translate those into Greek as well. And that's known as what we we call the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the Septuagint is really sort of where things get a little bit murky uh, because we Protestants would say, well, the Septuagint, has all of our canonical books of the Old Testament, and it has some additional things. Uh, But some Christians, like 
Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox will see the Septuagint as sort of being the standard canon of the Old Testament, and therefore they receive these additional books and additional pieces of books. And so things do get a little bit murky, uh, but from what Protestants have always seen as we study even the early church and early Christian fathers, uh, it seems very clear that there's a witness that ancient first century Jews, such as Jesus himself and the apostles, while they would have read the apocryphal books, uh, they wouldn't have seen them as being on the same plane as the books that we receive as the Old Testament canon. Uh, they would have made a distinction in their mind. And we see this, for example, in the writings of Josephus or Philo, uh, who, who mentioned that these books weren't seen in the same way as the books that we Protestants know as the Old Testament canon. And so while that's the case, we don't think that these books are totally worthless or evil. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we would have been, as we talked about Hanukkah and the Maccabean mm-hmm. Revolt, we were mm-hmm. reading from and thinking through the book of the books of Maccabees. There's yeah. actually uh, one, two, three, and four Maccabees. Um, and so although the Catholics only hold to two of them being mm-hmm. canonical. And so our Belgic Confession in Article 6 uh, points out that we can think of these Old Testament apocryphal books uh, as books that are worth reading. So Article 6 says it like this, the church may certainly read these books and learn from them as far as they agree with the canonical books, mm-hmm. but they do not have such power and virtue that one, one could confirm from their testimony any point of faith or of the Christian religion, much less can they detract from the authority of the other holy books. And so this is essentially summarizing what magisterial Protestantism taught all around uh, Europe at the time, that these books were good and worthwhile. And in fact, the Anglican Church and maybe even parts of the Lutheran Church, I'm not sure, I'd have to fact check, uh, retained the apocryphal books in their Bibles. They just designated them as apocrypha. Mm -hmm. So they were still worth reading. And they're still good to read, but they're not inspired, and therefore we're not to build our doctrine on anything coming from them. So that's for the Old Testament. But for the New Testament, the story is is a little bit different. Uh, the New Testament, uh, there's a story of how these books became a part of the canon. And Protestants and Catholics really disagree over this point. Mark, do you want to tell the story here, or well, should I continue riffing? No, no you, you can continue going for it. I, maybe one little addition sure, yeah. is that um, the the Old Testament apocryphal books are regarded, as you read from the Belgian Confession, as valuable for reading. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some places where they do contradict some yeah. biblical theology. However, um, even like I'll, just so that people know that... Uh, we're not making that. Yeah, up. we're not making it up. I mean, you can refer to um, different different parts of the, particularly the book of Tobit, which seems to encourage that that you can be saved by your works, saved by giving alms to the poor. Um, and uh, there, there's another place in in the apocrypha where it says that the exile will last for seven generations, and so that contradicts what Jeremiah said that it would last for seventy years. Hmm. And so we go with Jeremiah on that prophecy, which ended up being correct. And yeah. um, against Baruch in that case, who said that it would last for seven generations. So um, those um, issues, notwithstanding, it is permissible certainly for for somebody to read through some of these apocryphal books and even be blessed by them. Um, 
for example, the song that a lot of people know and love, Now Thank We All Are God, is very likely drawn from an apocryphal passage. Hmm. And so anybody could sing that song and say, yeah, those are all things that a Christian believes today, and that's good theology. Um, And so the reason that I want to bring that up is that's actually pretty different than some of the New Testament um, books that were not chosen to be included in our New Testament, where there are Hmm. more more brazen and open contradictions to particularly the mission of Jesus, where something like the Gospel of Thomas really seems to make Jesus into a wise teacher mm-hmm. more so than somebody who came to die for our sins. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, a again, a very, very big difference in its core message. So the apocryphal books um, a Protestant can recognize are, are not just this, this dire threat to our faith and our understanding of how God relates to his people, yeah. whereas some of the um, the rejected New Testament era books um, really would be more uh, more likely to to pose a threat to sound doctrine. Yeah, that's an interesting point to make. For anybody who's listening, you may not know this, but the books that Protestants refer to as the Apocrypha, with a capital A, are all books that come from uh, the intertestamental period, and yeah. therefore in the Roman Catholic canon would be in their Old Testament. Uh, None of the books that we consider Apocrypha with a capital A are books that are additions to the New Testament. Our New Testament is is identical to the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox New Testaments. Uh, so that's that's an important point to bring up. So that then brings us to the, the story of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Now, the New Testament story, from what I understand of it, is, is very fascinating. Uh, you have what are mainly books that were written for local localized distribution. So, for example, Paul writes books to different churches, to the church in Ephesus, or to the church in Philippi, and he intends that these that these uh, letters he's writing will be read and distributed. Whereas, and that's 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 very true in the in the example of Galatia. Galatia is not a city; Galatia is a region. So he's intending that this book or that this letter gets distributed to the various churches of the area. Uh, but these these letters eventually have to become. Uh, written and copied. Uh, there's no printing presses back then. That's an important part of this story. Yeah. And so it takes a long time for these letters. If, if you're Paul and you're sending a letter by foot to a place a couple thousand miles away uh, and you're sending it with, with a messenger to take it for you, that messenger will take it to that church and then that church will have to make copies of it if they want to disseminate it further. Uh it's not like we're with the internet today. You can put something on Google Docs and everybody everywhere can read it instantly. <laughs> yeah. This is a long, drawn-out story. And so at what point do we see Christians beginning to, th- to realize that there is a, a canon for the New Testament? Well, it seems pretty clear, actually, from what historians uh, can, can see uh, and from what I've read, that really by the first part of the second century, so this is the early 100s, this is not long after the apostles had had all died off, uh, that we see various lists being constructed that are telling us which books are a part of what the early Christians considered inspired canon. Mm. Uh, we don't get the final list of the 27 books of the New Testament until the fourth century with Athanasius's festal letter of 367 A.D., 
uh, where he sort of finalizes in a sense. He, he, he says, these are the books that I recognize, and everybody in the church says, yes, we recognize those same books. And those are the books that we Protestants and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox all recognize as part of the New Testament. But there's this long story of how these books get disseminated, and it takes time for these books to uh, go from region to region. Uh, if you were a Christian in Ethiopia, you may not have been familiar with the books that were written to, to churches in Turkey for a couple hundred years. And so as these books continue being copied and passed along, uh, the church becomes more and more aware that there is a list, and it's a growing list, not because it's continuing to get bigger and bigger, but because it's taking time for us to figure out that there are all these books that were written either by apostles or by them, by those who were under their care, who were sort of superintended intended by the, the apostles who were above them. And so this all leads to a big question in the whole uh, story of canonization. And that question is this, was the canon created or was it recognized? Was it created by the church? Did the church in the fourth century impose a canon or did it recognize a canon? And for this, whenever I teach on this, I like to tell us a little bit of a story or an illustration that I've borrowed from a, uh, an apologist named James White. Uh, it's from his book on Roman Catholicism. I forget the exact name of the book, but I, I, I borrow loosely from what he uh, writes there. And he, this illustration basically is, well, let's, let's, let's consider that there was an author today, alive today, and she writes... 27 books in her lifetime. And let's say that 500 years from now, uh, her work, which was never popular, never very famous in our day and age, uh, begins to amass a really large following. And it becomes part of the English canon of the year uh, 2523. Um, and so scholars are now trying to go back and figure out how many books did this author, this woman, actually write? And so people begin positing, well, actually, I think she wrote 33 books. And some people may say, actually, I think she only wrote 21 books. And so there's these debates on how many books this author wrote. And so they wisely decide, let's create a, create a board and people who will be on a sort of committee who are going to do some research into this and really try to figure out how many books she wrote so we can know which books uh, that she wrote so we can read them all and know exactly what she wrote what she made. And so they go through and they begin to do all the research and they finally, lo and behold, figure out that she wrote 27 books. Uh, now we might say, yes, okay, they figured it out. They actually uh, got it right. They found out that there's only 27 books. Now would we, we can ask, did they create the canon? Did they make this list? Or did this committee uh, recognize the books that she wrote? And we would clearly say, well, they recognized it. And this is where the, the passage that I read at the top of the episode is important. Protestants think of John 10, 27 as being an important verse here, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We would say that this is uh, illustrative of the process of the canon. The church did not create the canon. It did not decide which books got to be in or out as if it had authority over the canon. The church listened. The church was listening to these books of scripture and saying, yes, this is true. So this is God's word. We hear his voice in these books, and we do not hear his voice in these other books. And so this then leads to the question of criteria. What would have been the criteria 
for the canon. And as far as I can tell, there's four main criteria. The first is apostolicity, meaning that it came from an apostle or from someone who was superintended by an apostle or commissioned by an apostle. Uh, these are people who worked very closely with uh, the apostles. So this would be somebody like Luke, for mm-hmm. example, or Mark. Mm-hmm. These were not apostles, but they would have been working in in close uh, uh, pairs with the apostles. Uh, another criteria that the church would use to gauge whether a book was to be received as inspired scripture was whether it was uh, had a Catholic reception, meaning that it was widely received. It was received by the whole church. So if it could be verified that a given book had been received by Christian um, Christians all over different regions where Christianity had spread, and they could attest that their churches had been reading the, this or that book for a very long time, this very, this very clearly had to have elevated the status for a book and helped it garner support for canonization. Um, another one would be liturgical usage. If the words of a, of a certain book had been long a part of a church's liturgy or its worship rites or rituals since very early in, in the church's life, this would also have helped prove its authenticity. And then fourth and finally, and maybe this is kind of a longer one to explain, but it had to have a consistent message in theology. theology. And this is interesting because, well, how would they have verified whether these books were consistent with Christian theology? Uh, I think the best way would have been through using what we know today as the regula fide. This is what early Christians referred to as the, the regula fide, they, which means the rule of faith. And so what was the rule of faith? Well, early on in the Christian church's history, there would have been memorizable statements, sort of like proto-creeds, that Christians would have passed along to each other. And actually, this is how the Apostles' Creed develops, and the Apostles' Creed then develops into the Nicene Creed. We actually see some Mm -hmm. statements in the New Testament that looked to be sort of like creedal statements. Um, one of those might even be 1 Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. where Paul talks about how he's passed along being of, being of first importance, and that's the death and resurrection of Christ according to the Scriptures. Uh, we see these in other letters of Paul that look to be not where Paul's actually speaking in his own words, but he is quoting from something. Uh, so I, I sort of think of these as proto-creeds. Yeah, when you see it, uh, an indented portion of a New Testament letter, that's often what that's referring to. Yeah. And so you have Philippians 2, mm-hmm. the um, the hymn that's sung of how Christ did not yep. consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so that's yeah. very likely not just a, a song that people would have sung, but a, 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 a hymn primitive or, creed, you might yeah. say. Yeah. And it was a way of memorizing the, the truths of the yeah. gospel yeah. and passing them along in a way that could be verified and sort of standardized. Uh because it would be easy in a world where people were not mostly literate for the Christian faith to become quite, I don't know, changed over yeah. time, sort of yeah. like a bad game of telephone. Morphed and, and yeah, transformed, yeah. And, and so it's, it's even believed that 1 Corinthians 15 was the first thing that was written down that hmm. we now have in the Bible. So... I, I read an article about this a little while ago that Interesting. that it was it is actually believed by lots of New Testament scholars that the beginning verses of 1 Corinthians 15, particularly verses 3 and 4, hmm. were very likely written within 10 years of Jesus' ascension. Yeah. And so um, that's what Paul says is of first importance, and it's passed on um, to the Corinthian church 
intended to be passed on to other churches as well, yeah. that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he rose from the dead, and, and then he goes through the list of people who saw the, the risen Christ. And so it's very likely that was the first thing that was actually put pen to paper in yeah. the whole New Testament, which is pretty cool, actually, if that you think really of cool. how central that is to our life and our message, and that's what the Spirit first inspired somebody to write down. Yeah, and so all of this goes to show that Christians had a sort of theological matrix mm-hmm. that even though a lot, most Christians weren't literate and couldn't read any scriptures, and the scriptures weren't readily available the way that they are today, because again, these scriptures had been sent out to various regions and they needed to be copied and copied and copied again and again and again so that they could be spread throughout the Christian world and all the churches. And so how was the faith being passed on? What well, was being passed on through memorizable statements of faith, we might say. And so... And they also have the Old Testament. And they, yeah, and, and that's, so that's, that's also important. They have the Old huge. Testament. Yeah. So those were their two means by which they, were, they would sort of use theologically... Uh, to sort of accept or reject whether a proposed mm-hmm. uh, scripture or book of the New Testament was actually a, truly a, a book of the New Testament written by an apostle or someone under uh, their authority. And so they could re- quickly reject books that taught, for example, uh, that Jesus was married. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or things like that. They would be able to say, well, th- you know, this actually doesn't fit with what we've been taught. This does not fit with the uh, the tradition of teaching that has been passed on to us from generation to generation. And so it's this book seems spurious. Uh, and so they would be able to sort of filter out what was in and what was out uh, fairly easily. Um, you have that happening in the Bible itself with the Berean community. So yeah. it says the, the message comes to the Bereans, I believe it's in the end of Acts 17, and um, what do they do? They compare what they've heard to the scriptures. Well, yep. they didn't have a Bible like we do today. Yeah, would have been that that the meant Old the Testament. Old Testament, yeah. the Septuagint. And so um, I think where people get into a lot of trouble here is where a lot of Protestants forget the importance of using the Old Testament hmm. um, to help us understand the New Testament. Yeah. Um, when we isolate the New Testament as a kind of unique revelation, then all of a sudden it, it starts to seem a little bit shaky uh, when, when you start to think about how it was developed. But when you consider they had the Old Testament, they had knowledge of God, they had, of course, also the gift of the Spirit um, yeah. that was just exploding through the church in its earliest days, uh, and of course even is still today. Um, then you start to understand there are criteria, there's logic that's used, mm-hmm. there's um, comparison of... Um, maybe what somebody hears about God to the God that's described in the Old Testament, like the Bereans were doing and saying, yep. um, in their case, they said, this does look good. This this is yeah. fitting with the work of the Messiah that we hoped would come. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would, I would guess the Bereans would have heard other things that they would have said, no, um, that actually doesn't comport with our understanding of the type of thing that the God of the Old Testament would ever do. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and it fits in with that passage from 1 Corinthians 15, where it says he was raised according to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Uh, The scriptures prophesied Christ's resurrection, and this is what what Jesus points out, for example, on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 14. He talks about how it's all pointed to him and to his death and his resurrection. And so the scriptures were, the Old Testament scriptures were, 
one of those things that Christians could use to weed out false theology. And so in thinking about these criterion, or criteria, uh, Christians were able to recognize Scripture. That's Mm -hmm. a big word Mm -hmm. if we're talking to Roman Catholics. The Church did not create Scripture, just in the same way in that illustration that the, the committee trying to figure out the author's number of books, they did not create books that she wrote. She wrote them, and it was up to them to to recognize which books that she wrote. And so mm-hmm. that's an important part of the storytelling process. Maybe something we could get into later on, in another episode down the road would be the story of the transmission of the canon mm. throughout history. Mm-hmm. But that is really a whole other can of worms. Uh, <laughs> but I think what's what's helpful here, to go back to that main point, especially that verse from John chapter 10, is that Christ is Lord of all. And so it makes perfect sense uh, from a Christian standpoint that his word would be preserved, it would be handed down, it would be received, and it would continue its existence into the future, uh, despite all of the complications and obstacles that would have uh, been in the way. It's not easy for anybody in the ancient world to pass on texts, so many thousands Mm. of texts written in that time period in the first century are not available to us today. Uh, Although we are discovering more and more. Right, right. And that's that's another interesting part of this whole discussion. When people I talk to uh, bring up questions about the canon, it's it's interesting to point out that there are actually so many thousands more manuscripts of the Old Testament that affirm its veracity and ver- affirm its its accuracy mm-hmm. way more than any of the ancient Greek books that we have from Plato or Mm -hmm. of Homer's Odyssey, uh, we have way more affirmation of the New Testament than we do of of books from that same time period. Which Uh, is amazing because the church was so heavily persecuted in its first days. Um, And uh, this is really where actually the Alpha course goes. And Hmm. and when it's starting, um, I, I believe it's in the second week of Alpha, that's the question is, can I trust the Bible? And, and um, I believe it's Sinclair Ferguson who they have in their newest edition of Alpha mm-hmm. who's talking about all of the, the other manuscripts that we just take you know on, on faith that it was the Iliad was written by Homer and, yeah. um, and the you know plays and, and different uh, um, speeches that were given by, by Cicero and other you know playwrights of the Greek ancient world. And there is so so much later evidence of it and so much so much more so much less evidence of those things as well hmm. whereas um, with the New Testament scriptures um, we actually had very few manuscripts that were very early until it was about the mid 1800s and then yeah. archaeology became a really big deal mm-hmm. in kind of the modern scientific mindset yeah. and so they began, searching for manuscripts and finding a lot of really old manuscripts and um and so um even even recently finding some of the gospel of mark written on um some paper that was used to mummify a body in egypt and that that's very likely the earliest manuscript that we have of any book of the bible and so (laughs) with with infrared technology they were able to discern that the greek letters on this mm. mummy's wrapper, <laughs> uh, wow. mummy's uh, kind of wrapping uh, garment, I guess, were 
from the book of Mark. And so even the fact that it was in Egypt and it had had to travel somewhere means that the gospel of Mark was um, was written far before that. So yeah. uh, the more we discover, the more the closer we're getting to um, the time of the apostles. And hmm. I, if, if somebody was going to take away the one, I would say, main litmus test for a book's inclusion in the in the New Testament, it would be that apostolicity. Hmm. Um, obviously, it, you need the others as well, but oh, yeah. I, I just find that such a memorable um, little criteria that, that it a is book, the most important one. Yeah, yeah. by the, the book of the Bible had to be written by an apostle like Paul or by someone who knew an apostle firsthand like Luke or Mark. And mm-hmm. the Bible refers to Luke and the Bible refers to Mark as well yeah. in, in other places in the New Testament. And so even there you have kind of some some cross-pollination happening and mm-hmm. some, some cross-references which are really helpful. But uh, the, the reason that I would want people to remember that is Many New Testament imposter books could certainly not be attributed to an apostle or somebody who knew an apostle. Thinking of things like the Nag Hammadi Gospels, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel yeah. of Thomas, um, which were almost certainly written 300 years after the time of Christ. Yep. So they don't live up to any of those criteria. Yeah. Like churches in the early period of the church would have said, you know, those are those we don't have any history of reading those mm-hmm. all that because they weren't ago. even written and you, so were yeah. you guys reading those no <laughs> nobody was reading these okay then that means that these are highly questionable yeah. or as the kids would say today these are sus uh, <laughs> these are suspect or but people are tricked because they hear gospel of thomas well thomas is in the new testament right. so it must be an apostolic right. um peter was in the peter new mary. mary was in the new testament um, however it, it's very clear that those um those books, uh, those letters, um, not only were not written by apostles, but but do in in many cases contradict the message of mm-hmm. of the canon. Yeah, and so we do hope this hope this has been helpful. This is sort of our final puzzle piece on <laughs> the conversations we had a few weeks ago about Hanukkah and the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, which maybe got you wondering about these books of the canon. I'm sure also that there's a lot more we did not touch in, on in mm-hmm. this rather short episode, mm-hmm. uh, but it's an important part of how we understand Scripture. And if we understand Scripture and we believe that and confess that the Scripture is true, uh, we, we should also understand the, the process and the story of how we have received God's Word. And we believe it is just that. God has spoken and because he is the Lord of all, he has made sure that his sheep has have heard his voice. Mm. And that is the great sort of gospel-centered way of understanding the canon. God speaks, he is Lord, and we listen. Mm. And so I don't know if you have anything else to add to that, Mark, or any other words of encouragement, but yeah. I yeah, I, I would just want to encourage people to trust what the Bible says as a reliable witness and... Mm. and um, I think that sometimes in these conversations where we get pretty technical about various things, you can, um, hopefully we haven't done this, but it would be possible in a conversation to get so technical that we kind of lose the warmth of, and the beauty of, we have the Word of God, and we have what the Belgic Confession says, everything we need, that the -hmm. will of God has been revealed to us um, in a way that is sufficient for our salvation. Yeah. And and so... um, 
encouraging people not to get maybe too bogged down by all the particulars, first to trust that God's word is true because we move from faith to faith, hmm. um, and um, and then second to, you know, it is good to do that work of discerning, um, discovering some reasons for why we believe this word is true instead of just taking it on faith. Hmm. Um, that's been the purpose of this episode, give you some tools to trust more fully that it's true. Yeah, I guess... One thing I could add, now that I think about it, would be a recommendation. If you found this episode really helpful, mm. or it's something that you would like to go down the rabbit hole for a little bit more, I would recommend a couple of books by an author named Michael Kruger. He is a professor at RTS Charlotte. Uh, one of his books is called The Question of Canon, and his second book, sort of a follow-up to that, is called Canon Revisited. And these are two great places to start if you are looking at an, a particularly reformed approach to the doctrine of the canon. And what he gets into in these books is sort of a theology of canon. And I've already sort of implicitly taught you this theology of canon by quoting from John 10. Uh, it's a God-centered theology of canon. It's not just something that happens because humans were at work and they were yeah. trying to figure out which books were which. They the early Christian community, the early Christian church, really wanted to hear God's voice, and they knew that they were hearing it, and so they wanted to make sure that they that they understood it correctly. And he points out far more interesting points in, in this book than what we've even talked on here about how Christians knew that they needed, for a new covenant, there needed to be new scriptures, there needed to be hmm. new writings, and so he argues that the apostles were well aware of what they were writing being a part of this this new canon in a sense and so yeah if you want more to read those are two books i would highly recommend yeah this is big for your work of apologetics in convincing that atheist that you know to trust in the christian religion um this is going to be something that will come up i would guess in every conversation of apologetics is can we trust that the bible is the word of god and that what is in the bible should be in the bible and yeah. so, um, yeah, the purpose of the episode was to say yes to those questions and hopefully hmm. give you some tools for the, that conversation. Yeah, so we thank you guys for listening, and we look forward to being back with you all next week. Until then, grace and peace. All right, see you.